Hello, welcome to another episode of the Flow Artist Podcast. This episode is a conversation between myself, Joanna Stewart, and Michelle Jane. I would describe Michelle as a teacher's teacher, not just because she facilitates yoga teacher trainings and mentors other teachers, but because over her 10 plus years in this profession, she's developed some deep, deep insights into the heart of this practice. In her own words, I believe my role to be more one of facilitating the experience that is unfolding for each person, unique, distinctive, and always evolving. In this conversation, we learn about some of her key teachers and how she's integrated new information while maintaining her own voice. We learn about the difference between projection and empathy, the importance of community and continuing professional development to stay inspired. Michelle has been an influential teacher in my own practice and is one of my personal inspirations to become a yoga teacher myself. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. All right, Michelle Jane, thanks for coming today. I'm going to start by telling us a little bit about your background and leading into how you discovered yoga. Sure, I'd love to, Joe. So my background is um, predominantly from dance. So I've danced since I was three and I did a couple of um, dance certificates. And then I headed over to the UK and I did a couple of years over there at Pineapple Dance Studio, which some people might have seen that reality I've seen TV your show. show. Yeah, wow. Louis. And I actually, I never met Louis, but I did meet Debbie, who owns Pineapple. And um, yeah, that was really amazing over there. And it was actually really weird because when I was there, I went on a. Um, uh, adventure to Lebanon and I was doing an exchange thing to do some dance teaching and teach yoga which at that point I participated in two classes in my life and I was doing it for a company called Caracalla Dance Company they were uh, Beirut Lebanon they were on tour so they needed someone to come in for three weeks to host the classes while they were on tour so that was probably maybe the first time that I ever taught a yoga class from a movement stretch background and not really tapping into the spiritual or philosophical components of it. Um, so I guess it would have been just more of like a stretch class. So kind of the stretches that you just did for yourself. Well, yeah, a lot of them are very similar, which is why I guess in my practice, some things come quite easily to my, to my body because my body's been so used to reaching past its limits for such a long time. Um, but still, it's nothing compared to some of the stuff I see out there, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so, okay, so I get back from the UK and I head over to Western Australia and that was when I did my first Hatha-based yoga training. Um, and while I was in Western Australia, it was a 12-month course and it was with a company called um, Yoga Health. In fact, their website is www.yoga.com.au. Wow. <laughs> nice one. So that was, they snapped that up straight away. And so, I did it. Sorry to yeah. butt in. Was yeah. that based on your Lebanon teaching experience that you were like, oh, this is something um, I really want to do? Or No, I went from UK, I went to America, I went to Los Angeles and I was there for three months. And I actually befriended this woman, this is in 2000, who was doing her Bikram training ah. in 2000. And she would tell me about this room that... They would all go into this massively, of course, the 38 degree room and just, you know, go over these postures and this rigorous training that she was doing. But from her personally, she said she'd never felt better, that all her ailments had cleared up and everything had cleared up. And I wonder if some of that curiosity spilled into 
my yes towards that yoga training, the initial one. Um, but it was heavily influenced by a woman that I knew in Perth at the time when I first arrived. And she was living with a yoga teacher who actually dressed very much like a Kundalini teacher, all the white and the turban turban and all of that. Right. And me and this friend Tracy would have really big DMs all the time. And she said to me like one day, maybe after six months of knowing each other, um, I think you would really like this course that my housemate is a part of. And so I went ahead and did it. And to be honest, it didn't spark my interest. I went back, I kept dancing. I had a dance company in Perth. I was like choreographing stuff to Snoop Dogg and Black Eyed Peas. And I liked that whole high energy. Yeah. And it wasn't until I transitioned back to Melbourne and got into the fitness industry that my experience from that training was incorporated. And I started slowly, slowly, slowly teaching. And once I started teaching, which was in 2000 and uh, seven, then the interest like expanded. I was like, what, what is this? Well, I don't know. There was just some, there was some presence of teaching this style of movement, um, that was very, very different from the dance that I'd done. And I'd also done my body pump. (laughs) (laughs) So I was, you know, three more rounds, that kind of, you know, group fitness instructor. And, um, of course, yeah, yoga was just completely, um, there was something that I was like, that sparked my curiosity. Do you think who you were kind of evolved over that time? And so all of that kind of training that you did years ago was just sitting below the surface yeah, and kind of maybe. got to the place where you're like, oh, like, I don't know, like you feel like you kind of come to a bit of an end of the line of what you're doing in dance or just read a Yeah, I definitely come to the end. When I was in Perth, I had my own dance company and I'd come to this full circle of I was really tired, which I mean, I'm still in the same position, but I was tired of working for myself. Yeah. Tired of the no sick pay, the no superannuation, no holiday pay. There's no benefits. You've got to, you earn your money and then you've got to delegate it, you know, accordingly to your financial needs. Um, and... I went off and did, I'd done a youth um, cert three in youth support and I was offered a position with the council in Laverton, which was 360Ks of Kalgoorlie mm-hmm. in Western Australia. I was with the Indigenous tribe and I was the Indigenous youth leader for 12 months. And yeah, I kind of did come back to Melbourne and go, okay, I've done dance. Yeah. Like I don't feel that when I came home to Melbourne that dance was still calling me and maybe I'd severed my ties by doing something way out of the ordinary but in fact in Laverton is when I actually started I got some funding for the for um a community yoga project and we got some funding from the council and got yoga mats and all that and I we'd offer a yoga class and the ladies would turn up and again that's where I was incorporating that material so that was kind of the slow trickle beginning but yeah I wonder if doing that youth um that youth work was that severing of, but in saying that, I did do choreography for some dance stuff at the school and blah, blah, blah. But um, yeah, it was definitely like that transition. Coming back to Melbourne, dance seemed to be left behind, or the dance that I was participating in didn't seem to um, yeah, you yeah, be continuing. to like start at square one. Yeah, no way. And just no way. Yeah. No way. Yeah. And I'm just curious, like, when you started moving into the yoga, what do you think it gave to you that dance didn't at the time? Um, I think the 
the relationship of dance and yoga is an energetic one. Mm-hmm. So with dance, it's a nonverbal communication. Mm-hmm. But the difference is that nonverbal communication is from a choreographer who has told you a storyline and has chosen music and has chosen the staging. And then your job as the dancer is to energetically express that through movement to an audience. Mm-hmm. So I guess in yoga, that um, the difference is the sense that it's for you, that it's mm-hmm. not, you're not, you're not doing or practicing yoga in order for the understanding of an external... Yeah, it's not for an audience. Yeah, mm. for an audience. Mm. But I definitely think that, that um, the dancer mentality followed me onto my mat for a long time. Of and pushing? Um, there's something. There's something around performing for the teacher, wanting to stand out for the teacher, wanting to do a good job, wanting to get the pose and show that I've understood physically in my body. Um, and also I think because my body was able to do a lot of those deeper shapes, there was like a satisfaction that egotistically I could do some things that maybe other people were still working at in their body. So the shaping of my personality in yoga was, has definitely been like, um, an unfolding over time from that dance temperament and maybe what pulled me into the world of dance, which was definitely associated with recognition and in that industry, it's very, you know, you, they require that kind of vulnerability that you are seeking some kind of external approval because otherwise the motive to dance your guts out is lackluster. Yeah, totally. You know? Yeah, like they want yeah. to leave it all on yeah. the floor. And... Like you want to be chosen to be at the front of the routine or you want to be chosen to do the solo in the dance number. You want, like, you want the teacher to see you and to validate that you're good enough to... It to does do seem like as well, and maybe this is a little bit based on what I've seen on TV and movies, how it's almost valued if you can push yourself through pain and through injury and just keep going and give more of yourself than what you thought you had to give mm. kind of thing. And yeah. there's a bit of a process in yoga of, I guess, learning to nurture yourself a little bit more. Yeah. Um, I guess that's like, that's finding a balance, isn't it? And early on, I definitely would use things like a couple of glasses of wine and that will still sneak in if I just cannot find that stillness of, especially after a class, I think the best thing I can do at nighttime is take a shower. Energetically, that is that washing and the water process really kind of, um, removes energetic debris of the, the classes that I might've taught. But the pushing yourself, I guess it's that boundary, isn't it? Like that thing of my validation being wrapped up in something outside of myself. And I definitely think in the early stages of my career of teaching yoga in Melbourne, that validation was still thirsty because it was very difficult to say, no, I don't want to teach that class or no, I don't want to take on that 6.15 a.m. or no, I don't want to take on that 8 p.m. or I don't want to do the Sunday 4.30 class. So initially there was just, yes, I'll do it. Yes, I'll do it. And that constant thing of not really monitoring, is that too much to do in one week? And I guess I was younger, like this is 10 years ago. So I was just hitting my thirties and yeah, I guess that just the energy of being younger and taking on more. I guess as well, also kind of being new in an industry and not having the stability of steady income totally. through the year yeah sometimes once again i'm back in that position of yeah <laughs> we all are yeah <laughs> yeah definitely yeah but it, i think it's like it takes a while to establish yourself till you feel steady enough yeah. financially to start to say no to things yeah definitely that's very true 
We might have covered this a little bit already, but is there anything else from your dance background that you feel you feel still influences your practice or your teaching today? I feel like initially the vinyasa, like the way that I would piece together the vinyasa, and I really enjoy a flowy vinyasa class. So I recently did, um, not recently, but last year, March, I think it was, I did Shiva Ray's training finally. I really loved the essence that she brought to vinyasa. So I definitely think initially, and even now, I think that flavor of flow, and sometimes I might veer off, like I find that I'll definitely have a flavor of how I teach, that it might be one week, it might be I've learned something in my own body, and it remains more of an alignment based. And then another week, it's just like, oh, let's just move this, let's just move. Yeah, still the choreographer. And little I guess bit. also just the joy of movement. And the joy of movement. movement unfolds. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you just mentioned Chief Array's trainings, and I think that you're actually one of the most qualified <laughs> yoga teachers that I know. Do you want to take us through the other trainings that you've done and maybe a little highlight of what you felt like you've got out of them? Uh, okay. So I had the first 200 hours in Perth, and that was a 12-month um, thing and I, what I got I guess out of that was it was a one month every weekend or every Sunday so you kind of learn something and then you go off and live your life and then you would come back and check in and I think doing it over the 11-12 months made it quite solid Yeah. and it, it was more integrated into the experience of life rather than just condensing it all, learning it and then boom, like spurting it out then uh, 2008 or 2009 2008, I went to the Asia Yoga Conference in Hong Kong and was introduced to Anna Forrest. And she just blew me away. The experience I had in her class was a deep, deep, profound experience of really getting the connection between all the different emotions and beliefs, patterns and thought patterns I have about the world and how how deeply they're enmeshed in my body. Um, And then... So I went back the following year and did her 10-day intensive training and that was just, I will always say that training was a pivotal moment in my complete understanding of the power of yoga. She's a fierce woman. She's not into fluffy language or wanting to be seen as being nice. Yeah, she sees through all of that. Yeah, she sees through it all. And so being in that presence, is there's no hiding. There's no hiding behind your default mode of, like, this is too much, I now choose to collapse, or I now choose to escape, or I now choose to distract. So that was a really profound experience. And then after that, I did Baron Baptiste Level 1. And that's where I was given the routine of power flow, Having that routine and practicing that routine for that whole week has mainly or probably been my foundational sequence that if shit hits the fan and I'm in a situation and no one's getting anything and everything's going wrong, right, what are we up to? Standing stuff, right, balancing's next or twisting's next. So I always, that has been a pivotal foundational sequence for me to have under my belt even 10 years later. And Baron's... um, psychological warfare like he's another one who's just um I was one of the first people in the group to get pulled up and pulled up on my shit and it was so humiliating but so transformational um that yeah nothing was ever quite the same after that and it does seem like you're drawn to teachers who will see that yeah I'm a pretty like I'm kind of an intense person in my own world 
and I'm a bit of a straight talker mm-hmm. and I like teachers that will give it to me how it is. Like not, I don't want it wrapped up in, I don't want it wrapped up and colored in and handed in a pretty package. And I think that sounds beautiful and Shiva definitely wraps it up, puts it in a pretty package and it felt delicious in my body. And that was, yeah, Shiva was just a completely different experience. So after Baron, I then went off and taught and then I did a good maybe three or four year stint with Power Living under the under the mentorship of Duncan Peak. And so um, Power Living opened in Melbourne after I think three successful studios were in Sydney. And I went through that doorway because I was working at Fitness First at the time and was offered, um, I was also doing body balance and presenting for body balance. And then I was offered um, the flow champion, which sounds so corny. I was a yoga champion. You are a yoga Everyone champion. <laughs> champion. So this title got me and two representatives from Sydney and one representative from Queensland. We went on Power Living's main retreat, which at the time was a mixture of teacher trainers, regular um, students, and then the four of us. And we kind of got mentored into how to be coaches for this flow yoga program that was being introduced to the fitness first, um, gym brand. And then from that, that that evolution with power living and then power living opening in Melbourne and super, super lucky to have been working with Duncan. He was, um, a forefront runner in the yoga industry at that time. And I guess still is in the world of the power vinyasa. And we were really lucky to get, um, quite a lot of his attention and nurturing as the Melbourne brand started to flourish. Uh, And then we would have regular coaching and regular things happening within the presence of that studio, which I really honor how much that contributed to my teaching ability. And just, I guess, not even ability, but the growth of myself as a person. And then once you grow as a person, that's when the growth happens in the teaching. So the, the information that I learn on all these different retreats or these different trainings really has to be first integrated into my understanding before I can re-offer it back as a teaching method. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. That's really important because otherwise it just falls quite flat if you're just reciting. Well, you're just speaking someone else's words. Yeah, exactly. From your heart. Yeah. And I think that that's a, that's a challenge is that sense of mimicking a popular style or whatever. So what are we up to? We've done power living. And then there were heaps of workshops in a mixture of that. You got Tiffany Cruishank. Every time she was around, I'd do her stuff and I adore her stuff on Yoga Glow. I think Anna Forrest, I did a little bit more stuff with her, did Bali Festival. Um, so just kind of did some stuff. And I think the next main training, oh, was my yoga therapy with Lee, Bla- Lee Blaschke. And that was, again, another year of intensive looking at this practice in a completely traditional healing way. There was no power vinyasas in sight. And it was really challenging intellectually for me, that material, because it was very associated with the real foundation, the anatomy, and looking at the anatomy in a different way rather than just, oh, when you're doing chair pose, this is what's happening in your body. When you do crescent lunge, this is what's happening in your body. So looking at dysfunctions in the body and how to balance that out, looking at the, um, the Ayurveda doshas and how that would influence your client. There was just so many modules, but it was very, very rewarding. I did a diploma in counseling and I did that over two years. And that, yeah, that was a really beneficial way of 
about questions. Like whenever you're in a situation and someone's got something on their mind or is trying to express themselves, it's all a matter of how you can draw that information out for them, to, for them to hear it so that they know what it is to name their feeling, you know? And I think that's what the counseling did. And then all the different techniques of revealing how the mind works and how we can start making the mind work for us. Oh my God, I can't even remember the, the techniques, but there's like six, seven, eight main techniques that really start to take us away from stressing or prophesizing about disaster and switching that around to bring us, and it is, it's kind of mindfulness work, bringing us back. How do we get back to what we're dealing with in this moment? How do we even understand that the thing, the thoughts in my head is not the reality that's happening right in front of me? So, yeah. That's exactly what we're trying to teach people yeah. on the mash yeah. as well. So it's definitely, def, um, yeah, it's definitely, you know, the same, the same stream. And so in all of that, there's some pretty strong and differing points of view, like Anna yeah. Forrest and Shiva Way are probably at opposite ends of the movements. But yeah. Did you ever come up against contradiction or like paradox and just that, how do you make that process of what feels right for you? That's the, I think that's the answer to the question. If I was ever meeting conflicting information, if it was, I find like the there's a lot of groups on Facebook, like what's that one, the yoga, the yoga movement research group. And so all the time there's comments on that where you're like, shit, I say that cue all the time, you know, but what we're really trying to do around, well, I haven't said tuck your tailbone for eons, but what we're really trying to do around tuck the tailbone is that integration of pelvis and core engagement. Right. So there's, there is, there will continue to be such conflicting, um, experiences and points of views and I guess it's in some ways I wonder if training with too many teachers almost bastardizes that experience because I'm not staying true to one lineage and if you stay true to one lineage there's no conflict this is the way you do it this is the way you're taught this is your understanding of it which I guess kind of probably box it boxes it in because we all need to be curious and look outside well what has that teacher said about this. So that's important as well, but can lead you down a rabbit hole where it's like, well, where's the end? Yeah. You yeah. know, is there an answer? Yeah. yeah. So I, the, it's more about from everything. It's more about what felt right for me. You haven't done all these tra- trainings in the one year. No. It's like you can add <laughs> these layers. I wouldn't have been able to afford it on my yoga teaching rate yeah, either. Definitely. <laughs> yeah. Especially with the anatomical cues. Yeah. It's like that may be the perfect cue for that person yeah. at that mm. time. But even that same person in five years may not yeah. need that instruction. They might need to focus on something totally. different. And I think that that's a massive point of contention is that exactly everyone's skeleton is so different. They might be making the shape that we're all doing in a practice, but their glutes might not be firing off in the right way that someone else is and they're compensating. But my eyes... Unless I was just with that person in a private class, I wouldn't be able to see that they're, you know, overworking their lower back or, you know, only working their quadriceps or something. So it's it's really, it's so important to understand that sense of the difference in the makeup and how, how can I teach in a way that gets that area enlivened in that person's body so that the information of what I'm saying can be moved through the body in the best way way possible of yeah not not being interrupted or having that block you know like not understanding what does she mean by that what's going on so 
Yeah. I guess that disconnect as well of like, she's saying this, but I'm feeling yes, this. So I'll just do totally. what she says. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So there's lots of things where I'll say, you know, squeeze this. And if it doesn't feel right for you, then just leave that bit out. I'll definitely like put that on the end. I've started doing, I've started doing a lot more things differently than when I first started out. I think I was very set in my ways when I first started teaching, like, no, this is how it should be done. I was quite dictative in my teaching style and because I worked in the gyms, it's, they loved it. Like I look back now and I'm like, no way, I can't believe I taught <laughs> yoga from that seat. You know, that teaching seat of just do what I say, you know. I mean, it was done with love and compassion, but definitely the way that I perceive the classroom now and perceive, I don't know, I guess looking at my own personality neuroses and what dysfunctional modes I might drop into. Yeah, there's a lot that's changed since those days in the gym. <laughs> and I think for everyone, like if you're not evolving as a teacher, yeah. then that's a massive red flag. Yeah, exactly. Like if you're still teaching the same thing you did and you know when you finished your course, like... 100%. Hey, it's time to do a bit yeah. more training. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 100%. Um, someone from my perspective who's just sort of starting out in the yoga teaching realm and seeing how many, you know, trainings you've done, it's like, wow, do I need to do all of that? Or, you know, or like how, how can someone starting out actually feel that they're actually in a good place to even start with just mm. this, this massive information around. Teach what you know. Mm. Like whatever it is that you know, that's what you teach. Mm -hmm. the, I think the trap or the falling, tripping over ourselves is when we want to come across as intelligent, we want to come across as, oh, I know more than I do. Mm -hmm. um, maybe it could be for some, I want to teach a tricky pose because I perceive that there are advanced students in my class and I'm scared that if I just give a simple sequence that they're not going to like or enjoy this experience. Mm -hmm. Every teacher training I do, I am put back in that beginner's mind of, oh my God, I know nothing. What have I been doing for the past 10 years of teaching? So it's that sense of, okay, I, you, teach what is, you teach what has made sense in your body and what has really landed for you. And then that information that has landed for you will land in other people. But if I try to teach something that I didn't really get, then it's kind of like dead air mm. sort of thing. I, and it's such a, like the journey is that you'll find that if you do teach full time, there's almost this hunger for filling yourself up. So whether it's doing an intensive one week in, you know, a, t a visiting teacher in Melbourne, whether it's going somewhere to travel, there is artistically like a deep yearning of like, okay, I've kind of like taught myself out. I need to get something into me again. I need to get some inspiration and hear some things that I haven't heard for a long time. So, yeah, and just take 10 or 20 years to do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the rest of your life. Yeah, the rest yeah, of your yeah, life. Yeah, exactly. I guess that leads us into um, what does your personal practice look like these days? Do you tend to go to a lot of other teachers' classes or is it mainly home-based or how would your it week fluctuate? I'm a bit of a moody person. So if I, need a, if I know I need to kick up the bum, I go off to classes. I'll either go to – I don't really – there's probably not a teacher that I selectively am aiming for, but it's just about being held in the space. It's just about, at the moment, I feel too distracted that I would not be able to stay on my mat for 60 minutes. So I need to be in a space with other people and someone holding that space so that I can't run out the door and go, oh, I'm just going to go check my phone now. 
you know, I or whatever well, else. Like, there's something really nice about being guided through yeah. a practice, yes. especially when you're teaching all the time. It's so good, isn't it? And yoga glow, like if and if I've got if I want to do a theme for the week, like if I'm focusing anatomically on things or even um, philosophically, I'll have a search on yoga glow and see what teachers are doing what. And then you do those classes to draw material for, for my own classes. Um, I don't, to be honest, I really have never had my own practice of jumping on the yoga mat and just doing a 30, 40, 50 minute practice. I do that with meditation. Like I'll stop and do my meditation. But as far as a yoga thing, I think it comes from the dancing. I want someone to tell me what to do. Maybe I'm just too lazy or... I don't know. No, I totally get it. Yeah. Because you, so much of your week is sequencing. Yeah. And that's really fun. Yeah. But if that's your job, yeah. it's very easy for your home practice to turn into planning for your yeah, week exactly. rather than exactly. your time. That's so true. Yeah. Yeah, I go to class as yeah. well. Yeah. <laughs> and I guess with, you know, you're sort of expending your energy to yeah. serve other people. So it's good to just be able to have it contain back yeah. yeah it's yeah. so good it's always interesting as well when you go to class and a teacher will just hold a pose for yeah. a little longer than what yeah. you do in your home practice and it yeah. becomes a different pose <laughs> yes they'll teach the ones that aren't your favorites yeah. and you're like oh yeah and i, I think that's a little bit more yeah that's probably i mean unless i was committed to an ashtanga practice where I, that's the sequence and that's what you do but normally there probably is a tendency to do what you feel like doing in your home practice and you might go, oh, intuitively that's so what I need. But we can deceive ourselves in those moments. So I've definitely rocked up to classes and had my resting bitch face on and, the, you know, because I know so many of the yoga teachers in the industry that, um, and I've, you know, like been involved in some of their trainings at different studios and it can be a bit tricky to like be anonymous and just going to a class and just practicing because I, yeah, I do know a lot of the teachers. So again, sometimes that sense of, oh, I better make sure that I look like I'm enjoying this. And it <laughs> becomes, hurt their feelings. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like it's, um, it can be a bit tricky like that. So I've got to watch that I am doing that practice for myself and I'm not there, can, can, um, I'm not there reaffirming to the teacher that don't worry, I'm not here assessing your class. You know, sometimes that will, will step in like, what that, why are they saying that cue? That makes no, you know, and I'll hear it and I'll stop myself and go, you know what? None of my business today. Mm-hmm. Don't even care. Except then afterwards, they'll normally go, oh, what did you think? Can I get some feedback? And I'm like, oh, I don't want to go into that mode today. Yeah, yeah. You know, but no, no, no. I'll, I'll always, if they, if they do ask, I would always say, um, you know, well, feedback is I saw, I felt, I heard. It's always about that subjective experience rather than, oh, well, you should have been doing or you didn't make sense or whatever. So, you know, it's pretty easy. You run quite a few workshops and intensives. Yeah. How do you prepare and kind of decide on what themes that you're going to go into in those practices? Is it based on what people ask you for or just something that comes to you that you really want to share? Um, yeah. And normally the inspiration will come off a training. Like usually my my workshop offering of I'll go do some training. So at the moment I've just um, I've completed 100 hours with Tara Judell and I'm about to go back to Bali in November, do another 100 with her, which I adore. And she's one that you just walk away and you're like, ah, brain imploding, so many ideas, how to look at this. Uh, she's quite magical in her theming, in her 
verbalization in her descriptiveness she's quite phenomenal like that so I would say that a lot of the workshops that I've done a lot of the training are normally ideas that have somehow um, flourished off a training that I've done or a workshop I've done or yeah something that really resonated for me and I wanted to share that but in the way that it made sense for me yeah, it's kind yeah. of part of your integration process exactly. to pass it on. Huh. Yeah, I probably never thought of that, but maybe it is. <laughs> I have found for me that the best way to remember something is to, to teach, teach it to someone it. else. That's yeah. so true. Yeah. Sometimes if I'm on my own as well, I'll pretend to teach it to myself by ah. verbalising it out loud yeah, just okay. to get it in my body. Yeah, okay. I like that. That's helped me as well, actually. Yeah. Mm. And I also find that if I've done the practice that I'm about to teach, like the actual sequence that I'm about to teach, the teaching of that class is phenomenal because it's like so fresh in my body that, and I mean, I don't always do that. Like sometimes I've got class plans and I'll just grab those class plans and reuse them, but maybe with different themes or whatever, different adjustments to whoever I'm teaching to. But yeah, the best classes is when that actual sequence is fresh, 24 hour fresh in the body. And then, um, yeah, my best sort of starts to, my best as a teacher comes out. I guess as well, then you don't have to think about what you're doing. Oh, you're not thinking at all. It's like your your shoulder, your, you know, your external rotators are telling someone else's external rotators what to do. Yeah. Or sharing what to do. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, that leads us into something else, which I think is a real feature of your teaching and perhaps comes out of your study of counselling or maybe just who you are, but it's that sense of empathy and of mm. reading the energy in a room when yeah. you teach. Yeah. Would you like to tell us a little bit about that aspect of your teaching um, or of your personality? Yeah, like I, I feel like I'm a water sign, so I'm a Cancerian water <laughs> sign. So it's like astrologically it's, I would say that that water lends itself to an intu- intuition. I'm not saying that you know, like a fire sign wouldn't have that, but it's almost my general mode. Like I could walk into a cafe and you know what I mean? Like pick up vibes or whatever that might be. And then of course it's like, am I going to project my own insecurity onto the environment or am I just going to be in that state of my own centers active? And so then whatever's unfolding around me has its own permission to do what it's doing with reading, with reading energy. I, again, I feel it's, taken a long time to be okay with other people's discomfort and what I mean by that is to not hide whether it's like my own agitation of my instructions not being understood or my sequence not going down the well as well as I thought it would or the gentleness of the class feeling like it's just fallen flat to not be rescuing or trying to fix that and that's taken a really long time and I feel like Actually, since working with Tara or doing her training, in her presence, I got a very, very, very clear sense of what really it is to hold space, where all it is is that you're actually just observing how this experience unfolds. Whereas I feel a lot of my previous teaching has been about telling people what to do and then hoping they'll do it and then fighting my own natural neuroses within me that want to fight and make it better or make, and it's, you know, again, it's that projection, isn't it? Like people are not doing what I said I did. That means deep down that they don't understand me or no one understands me. You know, it just, how, how deep do you want to keep going down? 
But yeah, since with Tara, it's um, I had a really clear sense of holding space and that feeling of an experience where you're almost just being curiously and tenderly observed. You know, she's not watching to see, did that land? Is she really moving her shoulder? Is she pressing her feet after I've done that? Maybe she is doing that, but it doesn't feel like that's her intention. So energetically, I can feel like I can feel when there's jitteriness in the room um, or people struggling with their own stress management, especially if you're teaching midday corporate classes in the city, that they run from their office, they drop on their yoga mat, and then they run back to their office. So it's quite phenomenal that they're stopping to do this thing called yoga. And that intensity of energy that keeps you very engaged in your corporate world, how do you balance or equalize that in a 45-minute yoga practice? And what I've started to do, I only think in the past six months, is just saying less and less and less. If they don't get it, it's, it actually doesn't matter, you know? And that's, of course, not saying that I don't ignore them or if something unsafe is going on, of course I'm going to go over because I'm a teacher that verbally expresses quite clearly and so I walk around a lot. I'm definitely not up on my yoga mat at the front of the class demonstrating. I rarely do that. Um, but, yeah, holding space is an interesting experience and definitely brings up your own experience with, not fixing people like if your friend comes and wants to have coffee and she just blurts out this story about something she's really worried about are you able to just sit there and be like yeah I hear you that must be really difficult to be to feel that rather than well why did you do that why don't you just how come well I know someone (laughs) and most of us are really good because we want to combat our own anxiety of feeling useful or feeling valid in that situation So there's a lot of different layers in that experience of holding that energetic space for all of those things being squeezed out of the human body to kind of land in the environment and then to be allowed to naturally dissipate without my interference of it in some way. Do you find to get yourself into the the state of mind to navigate all of that do you have your own practices that you do to prepare for class or not really? Yeah, just your daily meditation and yeah, your practices like there's and that. Life. But for me it would be the very beginning of the class, like the first 10 minutes of being with the people in the room because I don't feel like I can ever prepare myself for who's going to show up that day. Like I might have prepared I'm so joyful, I'm feeling so connected. I walk into the room and it's just chaos. You know, no one's hearing me, no one's getting anything, everyone's doing their own thing. You know, it's a 60% beginners and then two advanced that are just pulling at the rain wanting more. So I'm not sure I can ever prepare for like what I'm about to face in the room. Well, I guess that situation you're describing is like overlaying your experience of what you think it should be on what actually is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Well, I guess the other side of that is, say you've had one of those crazy classes where the energy is all over the place and I don't know, maybe someone's burst into tears yeah do you have practices that you do for yourself other than your shower at the end of the day to kind of let that all go so you can flow on to the next class without the baggage of whatever happened in the previous one not really yeah I mean maybe it's a day by day thing sometimes I'm good to myself and maybe it's um 
yeah, sitting down with a cup of tea and just reflecting or doing some journaling or if it's a nice day, like like definitely off to um, the beach walk down uh, Brighton and walk along the beach. The water's always really good for clearing the head. But I find for me, the day classes have that different energy to the night classes and it's normally the night classes that leave me feeling if I would call it more drained or exhausted than the day. And I would say that's because that ener- the quality of energy within us is way more vibrant in a 6.15 and a 9 o'clock and a 10 o'clock and a 12 o'clock. Then, like even to the traditional Chinese medicine, your organs and the process of their peak and their low time, the afternoon is, is meant to be a breezy cool down until you end up in bed. But people being in this um, stressful world and this overly stimulated environment all the time, searching for more, 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 think that doing a hot yoga practice at 7.30 at night is like a really good solution to their stress levels. And again, I can't tell people what to do or what I think is best for them, but I definitely understand that heat and adrenals and someone who's been working and maybe drinking coffee that day, that all those things and mixing them up is probably not going to lead to the, um, the balm that yoga wants to offer, which is to bring balance. So with, with that, yeah, my, my actual experience, normally it's the nighttime and then normally it's like either I'll go to bed early and read or I'll do some journaling or I'll sit and watch The Bachelorette with a glass of wine. If anyone needs to feed your soul that evening. Oh, just trash, like just something where I don't have to think. Mm. Like that, re- and that's just, I mean, that is of course the easiest solution and the, yeah, it's not the best solution, 100%. Um, because sometimes in those moments, in those pure exhaustion, and if you sit with what you're feeling, the most profound things will come through because your defenses aren't as high to block it off and try to argue with yourself or suppress. I mean, you might find that as well if you go to a yoga class, but you're like, oh, I shouldn't have come, I'm exhausted. But you do the practice and it's actually, it's a bit more like a bit more profound, but there's something that is more accessible when you're at that point where you're not fighting or you're not trying to do something with as much effort. I've actually found as well, surprisingly, that some of the times when I've been quite exhausted or depleted have been some of my most transcendent yeah, teaching that's what moments I mean. as yeah. well. Like yeah. You'll just tap into yeah. another layer. Yeah. One of the other facets to what you do is mentoring new teachers. From your experience, firstly, what kind of drew you to this aspect of teaching yoga? And have you noticed that there's some kind of common challenges that arise for new teachers? I guess it's you come to that full circle where, you know, like I have, I've had so many great mentors as teachers myself and it's almost like a disservice to not re-offer that back out, whether that's in a workshop environment and getting teachers all together so that they can air their concerns. And they do find that in those environments that similar themes of all about self-confidence it's all about the insecurity of and I mean Baron says this that really ultimately all of us in the human form come down to the main insecurity I'm not enough in some way shape or form the compensation is the not enough compensation so I would say that's the main thing in the in the um, a brand or greenie yoga teacher who's just done their training and they're getting back out and again I don't know enough or 
I'm afraid, um, I'm afraid of pushing the students. I'm afraid of taking them to somewhere within themselves they haven't seen before. You know, what, I guess, direction is something in that mentorship thing to really help a new yoga teacher or a yoga teacher discover is what is their passion? Why are they teaching yoga? What's their, what's their understanding of it? And how has it made sense for them? Because that's going to be where they steer themselves from. And it's really powerful as well. Like when you're out and about in the world teaching yoga, doing your thing, unless you do have that really established relationship with a mentoring teacher, like who do you ask those questions to? Yeah, 100%. That's it. And there's not, and teaching yoga full time can be quite isolating unless, you know, there's only one studio in Melbourne that puts their yoga teachers on a 12 month contract. And so everyone who teaches at that studio has a regular 20, 25 hour routine that they do every week whereas most other teachers are teaching at between three to eight studios um they're popping in here they jump in their car off they go to that studio they've got two hours between classes a double here it's quite isolating and the only people you have consistent contact with are if you have a receptionist if you're lucky enough to teach somewhere that has a receptionist (laughs) you're not doing that yourself and the, if you have regulars, the regular students that are rocking up are the, are the ones that like you almost go, oh, yeah, it's Thursday at 6.30 a.m. Right, let's go, you know. But it can, be, it can be quite isolating. And maybe some of those fears are like if I ask that question, then it's, maybe it's going to expose me that I do know nothing, that I, like why would I have that stupid question? So, yeah, it's definitely – I definitely want to create a platform and an offering uh, for teachers to to be able to lean onto myself as a teacher and yeah to hook into that and then so important yeah it's important isn't it yeah flying out of that do you have any advice for those new teachers out there maybe feeling a bit insecure or isolated just keep practicing like if you keep practicing and you feel the yoga within yourself then then that is what will come out like that's that's yoga isn't it like yoga is the expression of life itself in that very moment so the only the only time i guess you know when i feel the most isolated is when i think about it too much oh here i go again or it's my thoughts that are creating more of the isolation than the reality because i mean i'm in contact with people every day doing different things but there it's that thought process so presence is a massive thing for new teachers and especially when getting in front of other students, if we find that we're too much in our head, the best thing could be if the students were in a child's pose to place hands and take three breaths with a body, you know, that a body that's in, because straight away it will remind you that the focus isn't about you. And that's really the main thing. Like I think that's maybe something that newer yoga teachers, they forget that even though you are up the front teaching a class, I'm on the yoga mat having that personal experience for me. I'm not I'm not looking out there going, you know, oh, well, what, what are they saying? Why did they say that? How come? Excuse me, what's going on over there? Like I'm having that experience. I'm not really focusing too much on what's happening with the teacher unless they're really like taking me for a ride that is pulling me here and there and it's, you know, like it's incongruent with bringing balance into my body. But... That's the main thing I think for newer teachers is to remember that it's never about you. Like it's about the students. It's about the people in front of you. And once you can get out of your perception of, oh, they're all looking at me. They all think I've said something wrong. They have all this. 
then you get out of your own way and you can just teach this information is flowing through you it's flowing through the cells of your body you know if you're breathing it through if you're breathing and doing your yoga practice then that oxygen is your prana is your life force is the information that is going through you and is coming out of you so and i guess that really brings us back to what you were saying about how now you say less in the practice and yeah. give people space for their own oh. experience rather than feeling like it's all on you to create yeah. that experience for them yeah and i yeah and i i wonder where that fits into that sense of um yeah feeling responsible for other people's experience and that that experience of boundaries because i still feel very very there's like an anxiousness that can still rise up in me when you know i say an instruction and then just leave them to kind of marinate in it anna forrest is a expert at it she leaves you there and man she won't say anything for another 10 minutes there you and are yeah, exactly. yeah. Yeah. Like gonna fall off. <laughs> shaking and she's undisturbed by the psychic warfare that you might be going through or you're projecting onto your environment and we have to i guess there is a reality in that that there is a projection from our students onto the environment and that's where it's so important that we can hold that space without being triggered by what we presume might be happening within students but definitely as a teacher definitely in any authority role you will always have people projecting dilemmas or experiences that they've had with teaching like teachers in their past everyone in the world has had a teacher primary school high school university whatever and we've all had different experiences with those teachers. So that's why the, um, the, the practice and the art of yoga is so vital that we can hold that space for people to unravel their psychic knots and not be drawn into that drama. It's interesting because I think it goes back a bit to what you were saying earlier about just being a student in someone else's class and you just wanting to um, be in your own space and perhaps you might... Um, look like you're not enjoying it but exactly. you're actually completely exactly having you know the most fantastic experience so yeah I guess it's 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 a matter of not buying into it's what the projection. you think yeah, yeah 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 it is it's that projection is that I have something in my head and I look at you and I presume that what's happening in my head is what you're doing yeah mm. well you know if you look like you're struggling or you're stressed or something mm. there's something I need to do to change that for yeah. you when yeah. you know maybe that's just something that they yeah. need to work through yeah but look don't get me wrong if I when I, if I saw a student struggle in a pose that you know very often it will happen that there's the beginning of a shape so if we do um you know, twisted lunge, twisted crescent, and then that ex the next step is to expand the arms and the next step is to bind. There's definitely those moments where the students that don't have that range of motion in their body are impacted by their environment. And walking around, there are those moments where I might say, let's just come back to the first step, you know, just to make it okay for them that you don't have to keep going. And also to make it safe for them. Make physically. it safe as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. This kind of takes us into a slightly different realm, but one of the things that you probably go through with new teachers is just the business aspect of yoga. And yeah. I've been seeing a bit online some questions about professional organisations, Yoga Australia versus Yoga Alliance. Do we even need to be a member of one of them? Yeah. Do you kind of have a point of view on that? 
there's a in one way both organizations are registries you need to train with an organization that is validated by them in order to join that group or to join the alliance and the the schools of yoga that have joined the alliance as registered training providers haven't necessarily I mean they have had to meet guidelines but they these guidelines are not policed in any way shape or form so in some ways it can be seen as a bit of a money-making venture because there's where does these thousands and millions of dollars I mean the yoga alliance has been going for a long time and how are they policing what's happening it seems that all that happens is send us that you did this and we'll give you this and then you pay that yoga australia is a little different in the fact that once you've done your first 200 hours they will um, enroll you as a preliminary member you then have to do another 150 hours and 12 months of training in order to be considered a level one so in some ways they're kind of asking a little bit more whereas with yoga alliance where's your 200 certificate yep do all this do all this and then here's your, you know, pay this fee and then there's the certificate. In Australia, to work in gyms, if you have not done a um, Cert 3 or 4 in fitness and you're not teaching any other kind of group fitness exercise formats, um, Fitness Australia does not um, have a umbrella for just a yoga teacher anymore. So in order to teach in gyms, you, it is, you do need the Yoga Australia membership to be validated and confirmed that you have met the requirements of training and that they're now covered insurance-wise for you to come into a fitness venue and teach. That does not apply to yoga studios who are privately run by people. Maybe if one person was a fully registered level one Yoga Australia member and someone was a preliminary member, would it impact their hiring ability? Maybe at face value, but if they went in and taught the class and the studio owner was there then no you're not going to go oh well that that person's better obviously because they're a yoga australia member right so in that way it's such a it is a bit of a tricky situation and there doesn't seem to be yeah the main thing is there doesn't seem to be your bang for your buck like no one's coming around to your class and assessing it or anything like that you're just paying your money for your membership and like I guess maybe like, you know, university, how many dodgy doctors are out there, but they've got their university certificate up there. You know, they've done the, they've done the work, but it doesn't necessarily mean anything. But I guess, you know, there's different, mm. there's way different methods of policing that in the medical industry, which maybe the yoga industry has. Um, but in the, in the US, there's no regulation on yoga teachers. And there's also this sense that it's like it's a 500-hour process. And once you got 500 hours, hey, you're a yoga teacher. <laughs> Ooh, yoga teaching is like a lifetime of learning. There's no organization that could tick you off and say, you've done 500 hours, you're now completely qualified. You're enlightened. Yeah, <laughs> totally. And then there are people that have been practicing for years and years and have done no yoga training and are phenomenal teachers of passing the knowledge on. Mm. So, I don't know, maybe on the resume it might look a little more cleaner and a little more yeah diligent but really in the bigger scheme of things the organizations as such don't have as big an impact as you know everything you'll do to register with them i guess 
I do know that um, Yoga Australia does require you to show some continuing ongoing yes. education. Yeah. I think it's at 10. Year. Oh, it's 12 CUC points. Yeah, though I think you get a couple of years. Three before, maybe. Yeah, so you don't yeah. have to do all your courses in the yeah. one year. You yeah. can do a big one one year and then yeah. they will carry you through the next couple of yeah, years. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, which again, like we were talking, you'd want to be doing some intensive once a year. I'd be surprised. There's not many yoga teachers out there that do their training of 500 hours, walk away and never go back. They're like, I'm good. Yes, yeah, I'm good. I know it all. Unless they're doing it as a hobby and they're only teaching like once a week and they've got, you know, somewhere that they can do it in their lounge room or something, you know. But if you're going to do it like full time, then... And I think most teachers as well don't even do it for professional reasons. Yeah. You just do it because you love that teacher and you want to learn from them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Actually, um, something we sort of touched on before um, and we spoke about this with Karina as well about you know yoga teaching being maybe quite an isolating experience for some how do you think it would be possible to go about maybe changing that if, if at all I know that's and that's hard because we all work such erratic hours that mm. would be the main problem is like I guess joining things like Facebook groups mm. where you feel part of a conversation mm. and it's not that you're anonymous, but, you know, you can kind of put something out there and then see who responds to that would be the main way of feeling connected. You could always, the studio that you work for, you could always, um, I think the best way is to go and do classes at the place that you teach at. And that's the number one way of connecting with other teachers. And it also, I don't know how to word this, but it kind of puts you in good favor because you are willing to take their classes. Yeah, it's a nice community spirit. Exactly. Yeah, it's like I respect spirit. you as a yeah, teacher. Yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. So I think that would be your number one way to get to feel more connected and involved is to yeah practice at the studio that you teach at um, or have yoga dates with friends or attend the general meetings that Yoga Australia hold, uh, festivals, like any festivals, workshops and trainings, like... If you agree to yourself to go to one workshop every three months, you'll always see familiar faces at those workshops. Yeah, and I guess it's just that getting involved, isn't it? Like you have to be the one that says a yes. You have to be the one that gets involved rather than kind of sitting back in your house and going, oh, I'm not connecting with anyone. I'm so lonely. I'm so lonely. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think as well for new teachers and for people who aren't yoga teachers, if you haven't been to a workshop or an intensive, sometimes people might think they're not ready. And it's always all levels. Like there'll always be instructions for all levels of experience. 100%. Even if it is a stronger practice. And you've got to remember once you've done a 200-hour at some point in that 200 hour, there was a lot of practice that you had to diligently be involved in. Like I know on the teacher training that I'm on at Move, we start both our Saturday and Sunday with a 90 minute morning practice. So that's every weekend. I mean, this, the course is only three months and they have, I think, two two week breaks, but that's every weekend a 90 minute practice. And then they've got to fill in and let us know that they've done three other practices during the week. So that kind of dedication to a practice is going to take you beyond just a beginner. I think as well, as soon as you decide you're going to teach, you kind of approach your practice with a new sense of discipline and purpose. hundred percent. Yeah. Which, and there's a flip side of that as well, because it means that your practice isn't just for you. Yeah. You're also kind of, um, I know when I 
was a new teacher and even now like you'll go to a class and you hear like a great cue or a great sequence or something so there's a part Store of your brain away. that's like file that away oh and then I can add it to this and then I can do that so sometimes you've got to like get yourself back out of teacher brain yeah. and just back into being present exactly. and soaking up that practice that you 100%. came for I, look seriously as soon as you make a decision to teach yoga you I don't want to say rob yourself, but you kind of do. You rob yourself of your practice. And I think that goes for any art form that you decide to make into a profession, whether it be as a painter, as a writer, as a singer, a dancer. Like as soon as you decide you want to make money from it and you want it to be your career, it instantly has a different flavor than when you were just at home writing a couple of pages in your journal every day. When you were just, you know, going to three classes a week. When it's just for you, there is a lot more joy and ease in turning up to your mat. When it's now your profession, there is like different burdens of expectation that unconsciously weigh on your shoulders because, well, there's, you're not rocking up to your job and the boss is like, so have you got this done? Have you done that? Have you had this done? There's nothing monitoring. Have you practiced this week? Have you prepared a theme for your class today? There's nothing monitoring that. And a lot of the time, yeah, like even the studio owners don't get the opportunity to go to the people that are teaching at their classes, which leads to all kinds of irregularities in queuing, in philosophy, in methodology of what is being offered in that space. There's the freedom of like letting the teacher do what they want, but then there's also that thing of, well, how do we ban this studio? How do we ban this community as, you know, we always avoid updog for some reason because it's too much in the lower back and we've seen too many mistakes or too much loading up or incorrect movement. So how does a studio make an agreement of we've all decided not to use this cue, we've all decided that if we're going to do this asana, we want to modify it in this way because whatever. I think coming back to what you said before, it's really easy to get sucked into feeling guilty as a teacher because you're either not putting enough time into your meditation no. practice or not going to enough classes or not putting enough time so into true. building your business or so not seeing your friends or not tidying yeah. your house. Like, yeah, you can always create more things to feel yeah. insecure and yeah. not enough yeah. about, which not comes enough. back to that yeah. fundamental 100%. Yeah. So how, I guess how do you go about sort of maintaining that passion or that love of it? Oh, (laughs) good question. Who's got the answer to that? Listen, for me, it's the training. Like if I'm getting stale, I know I need a training um, or I need to get back on the mat. And if I just do like two people's classes that I haven't done before or something unusual in a sequence, something wakes up in me again. You know, Um, I have to normally I will normally my energy energy levels will drop when I'm when I am um, not practicing as much and that's I would have to say that's the main signal from me that it's like right like it's getting very hard to teach it because it's not in my heart at the moment I haven't been getting on my mat I haven't been doing my meditation I haven't been I mean even reading like just reading really rich yoga texts is um is 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 food for the soul because you're reminded of like it's such a precarious path the path of yoga and living in this modern world and having so much not only stimulation but so much temptation that pulls at us all the time like oh you feel this why don't you just buy this or eat this or ingest this or smoke that or drink that then you'll feel better and all of us are looking for a quick fix because the path of yoga does take a disciplined approach 
because it does take a while to settle the nuances in the in the brain the samskaras and the those deep deep grooves and ways of being it takes a while to start to soften that and create new ones it's not going to happen because you do yoga once every four weeks you know (laughs) it's and that the the guilt thing is is that once you've entered into this metaphysical realm you know the power of it but the pull of the temptation of your easier way of lifestyle is always there it's and i mean yes we've got a balance yeah go home watch have a glass of wine watch the bachelorette no big deal but if i'm doing that and the bachelorette's on five nights a week and I'm spending two and a half hours a night watching that and that's going to take me two and a half glasses of wine, that's going to be counterproductive towards my practice. It just will. My my liver is going to have to process that alcohol. That is going to rob energy of my um, liveliness. It's going to detract. I can't bother doing yoga today. Too tired. I'm not setting my alarm for six Yeah, I'm not going to get up. Yeah. <laughs> So it, I think it is once you, that's where that kind of funny guilt thing that you've got to kind of balance out steps in is that you've stepped into that metaphysical world, you know how amazing it is, but the strings of the old way of living and living in and of this world continue to like, call your name. <laughs> <laughs> I blame Sophie Monk. Sophie Monk. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I know. She, um, yeah, the guys seem to love her. <laughs> Can't imagine why. <laughs> say was there anything else that you wanted to kind of conclude that conversation on i would just in my mind the thought that came up was i wanted to let the listeners know about um, yoga trainings melbourne which i've started and what i've what i've done is i've just put i'm just gathering information of trainings and workshops that have an educational outcome so i'm not going to be promoting or the the intention behind the idea isn't to promote an experiential experience like a deep yin yoga practice and followed by um, yoga nidra while that has immense benefits the the intention behind this idea is to be offering a platform so that teachers can drop in and go right what's happening in october yes i want to do more maya fascia stuff yes i want to do more yin training rather than going to a yin class So it's these training things that are going to give a teacher material that they'll be able to use in another class Um, and at an educational value. So it's not just you on your yoga mat practicing what the teacher's saying. You might be taking notes. You might be doing group work or, or whatever that might be. So I started it in July and it's now got 380 followers on Instagram and like nearly 300 followers on Facebook and just a really awesome a really awesome way to get everyone in the Melbourne community to come back together, that it's not a competition of this studio over that studio or, you know, that kind of thing going on, that all of us, and I mean, yeah, I'm only focusing on Melbourne. Unless an international teacher comes over, then I'll always promote that because I think it's really important to create a um, vibrant platform and to attract international teachers to keep coming over but yeah to just like encourage Melbourne studios to keep bringing out the best and to keep contributing to the development of the yoga teachers especially when there's so many of them that are doing teacher trainers and they're churning out the teacher trainers but then where are these teachers filling themselves up Mm. so really yeah to continue to offer those um those those kind of workshops and trainings that you can go to Yoga Australia and say, here's my CUC point. You know, I did 50 hours or, you know, 12 hours with this particular teacher with this style. 
So it's Yoga Trainings Melbourne. And if you look that up on Insta or Facey, then uh, you'll come across it. So hit a like. And if you also have a training coming up, then make sure to tag in the post. I'll, I'll put a note to that in the show notes as well, a link, sorry. Oh, perfect, so, yes, yep, yep. that'd be awesome. Absolutely, and it is a great resource. I've, I've sort of got it flagged on Facebook, so I can, was that see first, so I see everything ah, that... Can you do that with pages? Yes, oh, you yes, can. can, I think so, yep. So, um, so yeah, it's actually almost overwhelming how much yeah. stuff there is, but I think, like you said, there's um, so many different studios and they're doing all these different things like on their own so it's yeah. almost like how, how do you know who's doing yeah. what so yeah. no I think it's definitely a great yeah. resource and especially if you are just that solo teacher doing your thing yeah not particularly affiliated with one studio 100%. it's great yeah. to see that community building yeah. aspect and people just coming together yeah exactly nice yeah. on the shelf Killio. <laughs> and my pick of the week is uh the no stomach for cancer walk um this is happening on november the 12th at the botanical gardens and i'll put a link to that on the show notes we're actually planning to talk about this in another episode but long story short um i had stomach cancer my stomach was removed i'm okay now (laughs) (laughs) um yeah so this this walk is to help raise money for um people who are suffering from stomach cancer so yeah you should definitely sponsor me um if you can't do the walk I'm also doing a fundraising class, um, 28th of October, Saturday morning at Irene Warehouse, which is a cool warehouse space. All the money from that class will go to sponsor Ran on his No Stomach for Cancer walk. And in that class, we're going to be sharing some of the practices that helped Ran through this challenging time and helped him adjust to his newly sensitive digestive system. So we actually teach a workshop called Yoga for Digestive Ease, and we'll be sharing a lot of the practices on the morning of the 28th uh, through a scheduling um, overlooking mishap. (laughs) Overlap. Um, Overlap. I'm going to be teaching at World Vegan Day on November the 12th when Ran's doing his No Stomach for Cancer walk. So I'll be teaching a Yoga for Inner Strength and Peace class um, on the morning of World Vegan Day, which is at the Melbourne Showgrounds free entry to the event and I think they're going to be doing a five dollar donation or something to my class which will be going to the charities that they support so animal welfare charities bring your own mat if you have one and stay on for some delicious vegan food (laughs) I've got one thing as well yeah um yoga in the park for free it's an active park program um from the incentive of Glen Iris City Council and it's happening at Princess Park it's actually like active parks has five or four free programs happening Monday and Wednesday at 6am and Tuesday night and Thursday night is yoga and it starts at six o'clock and it's just out front of Caulfield Recreation Centre off Hawthorne Road at Princess Park. Uh, we will have mats but you can also bring your own and it is continuing, it is all continuing all the way until April next year but I'm doing every Thursday night um, until the 2nd of November at six o'clock so um, providing the Melbourne weather, right? <laughs> it's always a bit dodgy, but yeah. So um, active parks, uh, Glenira City Glenira initiative, and I'll be teaching every Thursday night at six o'clock. And we'll link to that one as well. Yeah, cool. On the website. Yeah. Thanks, Michelle. That was a great yeah, conversation. Yeah, Michelle. Day. Thanks so much for having me, you guys. It was a pleasure. And that was our conversation with Michelle Jane. Plenty of really good stuff there. 
As always, if you've got any questions or suggestions, feel free to reach out to us at podcast.flowartist.com or email us at podcast at flowartist.com. We're Flow Artist Podcast on Facebook or at Flow Artist on Twitter. If you did enjoy this podcast and you'd like to hear more, please subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher or SoundCloud. This will really help us get the word out. The theme song in this podcast is Baby Robots by Ghost Soul and used with permission. Do yourself a favour and get his music from ghostsoul.bandcamp.com. Thanks again. Big, big love.